0: Good morning. We're going to be referring to this sheet today. If you take a peek at your handout, it is the second, the third, right after the homework, right after your green sheet. You have the review, the Wellspring purposes and disciplines, and we're going to be referring to that um, during the discussion of the disciplines today. Well, we've been reviewing our Wellspring purpose and the disciplines since September. And I pray that applying these disciplines to your life is becoming more and more automatic. And that you're being blessed by the results. And that you're giving God glory for the way that He is conforming you into the image of His Son. Romans 8.29 Well, realizing that today marks the 11th time that we are reviewing these disciplines together, this morning I want us to focus mainly on the Wellspring Purpose. So before we go any further, we need to go to God in prayer. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for loving us and for providing us with your word which gives us the daily nourishment we need for spiritual health, for growth, for direction, and for the stamina required to live out your gospel purposes on earth. Please, Father, give us fresh eyes, open ears, and ready hearts to receive from you today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, let's begin like we always do, by flipping over those binders and reading the Wellspring Purpose together. It's to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. Well, because we have a tendency to let familiar things lose their impact, and since by now we're so familiar with that Wellspring purpose, I'd like to do something different today. I'd like to address this purpose from the very end of the sentence and work our way to the beginning of it. So first of all, and you can look in your notes to help you, first of all, what is the gospel purpose of the church? Well, every Sunday when you receive the church bulletin, you'll see the gospel purpose printed right under the name Grace Bible Church. It's to draw in, to build up, and to send out believers. And you see that little diagram in number one. If you look at your handout here and you look at that diagram, you'll see that the biblical vision of God is the glory of God. And that leads us to the gospel purpose of Christ, which is drawing in, building up, and sending out believers. Now, This is a beautiful cycle. And it takes the person through becoming a believer to growing in the knowledge and grace of the Lord, and then in turn to spreading the gospel news and to drawing in new believers into the fold. And then these new believers are themselves being built up And they're drawing in others, and so on. So let's look at number two. How is this accomplished? Well, if you look back at the purpose, you'll see it there. It's by living out the gospel. And number three. How can we effectively live out the gospel? Well, again, let's look at our purpose. It is done only by shepherding our hearts through Jesus Christ. And how do we shepherd our hearts? toward Jesus Christ, it's with the Word of God. So let's remind ourselves that this drawing in, building up, and sending out is done in our homes, that's discipline 2, and in our sphere of influence outside our homes, that's discipline 3, only after we purposefully, intentionally, and continually Shepherd our hearts toward God through his word, and in particular, the gospel. And that's discipline one. And this is what we mean when we say that we never graduate from discipline one. We never graduate from the gospel. And by now, we should know and understand how desperately we need to remind ourselves continually of the gospel. And to make Christ the point of our lives, not just the part of our lives, like we've been learning about at church on Sundays? Well, the Bible gives us many, many positive examples and role models to follow, doesn't it? You're probably thinking of David right now. He was the man after God's own heart. Remember in 1 Samuel 13:15, God calls him that. So it refers to him that way. And we also have many negative role models. Who are you thinking of right now in the Bible? I think of Samson as one of them because he allowed himself to be lured away from God with a holy, devoted heart. You know, in Judges 16.5, it says that the lords of the Philistines went to Delilah and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him. So we may tie him up and subdue him. Let's stop for a minute and consider that word lure. Well, we all know a lure is something that tempts you or attracts you with the promise of pleasure or reward. I want you to think about a fisherman, for example. I have my handy-dandy visual aids. (laughs) So you think of a fisherman. What does he do? He uses a realistic-looking bait to arouse and entice the unsuspecting fish that is soon going to become his dinner, right? So the fisherman dangles and bobs the enticing bait into the path of the oncoming fish in order to distract just one of them away from its intended purpose by arousing its self-centered desires for a tasty treat. And before long, that poor fish is enticed by the lure and he's trapped by the lure's cunning and deception, caught, as we say, hook, line, and sinker. Well, we realize we don't have a fisherman uh, trying to tempt and bait us to veer from our gospel purpose, but we've learned so far from the past ten lessons about the enticing lures in our own lives that can distract us by arousing our self-serving desires instead of being wholly devoted to the glory of God in our lives. Well, let's take a quick review of just three of the previous 10 Wellspring lessons in order to refresh our minds and to be on the lookout for ways that we could be lured away from shepherding our hearts uh, toward God with the Word of God. And that causes us to weaken the church instead of strengthening it in its gospel purpose. So in lesson one, you'll remember, that was the overview lesson. And it showed us that we need to prayerfully shepherd our hearts, shepherd our inner man toward God with the gospel, to the gospel, and because of the gospel. Remember, because of the gospel, we're saved from the consequences of sin. What are we rescued from? We're rescued from God and His wrath. What are we rescued to? We're rescued to God. By? By God exclusively through the substitutionary death of His Son Jesus Christ. And then lessons two and three, they taught us that our hearts are the source of all that is in us and all that we do. And it's the center of our emotions our thoughts, and our will, and it's the place where God evaluates us and addresses us. And we're taught that until we reach heaven, we're in that mixed condition. And therefore, we need the disciplines of shepherding our hearts so that we can remind ourselves what we once were, what we are now, and what we will be. And that's a good thing. So a big message for me in Lesson 3 was to learn that my own heart is the most excellent and expert of deceivers and I need not blame my deceptions on a fisherman in a boat. Instead, my own heart can be the one that's dangling that lure, enticing me to foolishly ignore the fact that I can be deceived in any circumstance, even when I'm surrounded by blessings. Christian. The only weapon against lures that are clamoring to entice our hearts away from the gospel is to be of sober spirit and to take ourselves to the word of God daily. Well, how have you been applying these disciplines to your life this year? Have you considered how you can rejoice in the ways that the Holy Spirit has been working in your heart over the past 10 lessons? Well, this week, I'd like us to reflect on the five questions that are listed in your handout. I'd like you to think about them through the week. Why must I continually shepherd my heart toward Jesus? How have I been applying the disciplines in my life so far this year? Is what I'm doing helping me to either shepherd my heart toward God or hindering it? Is what I'm doing helping to minister to those in my household or impeding my ministry? Does my heart's focus give me more of a desire to step into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel? The way I look at it, lures from the world and lures from my own self-deceiving heart can either blind-sight and, blindsight and defeat us, or they can give us another opportunity to do the following. Rehearse the gospel to ourselves, to preach it to others, And to praise God for rescuing us. And to thank him for actively working in our lives in order to make us more like Christ. The point is that we need not be surprised that there are always going to be lures out there. And we need to be ready for action. Being disciplined in the disciplines is a great way to be ready to live out the gospel purpose. And I'd like to close with a helpful illustration on the merits of being ready at all times, of being disciplined in the disciplines. Well, I know of someone that completed training to be a Navy SEAL. And you might remember that it was SEAL Team Six that brought down Osama bin Laden in 2011. The attack itself lasted 38 minutes with no casualties. And the reason that they were so successful is because they were equipped and they were prepared. Navy SEALs have distinguished themselves as highly reliable, highly disciplined, and highly skilled force, which goes through what I cons- or what is considered by many mi- military experts to be the toughest training in the world. It takes intense physical and mental conditioning to become a Navy SEAL. And I was able to see a video of just a small part of the underwater training that the SEAL team goes through. It made a big impact on me. And I want you to picture yourself right now as a SEAL trainee. Okay, so you're in your scuba gear and you're charged with the task of assembling a piece of very sensitive equipment with precision. Okay, you're being timed. You only have a few minutes to complete your task and you pass your test. And you're making really good progress when all of a sudden your trainer approaches you right from behind and he rips off your mask and he kinks up your breathing hose really, really badly. Well, what are you going to do? Well, first you have to fight that panic, right, that sets in. When everything in you is screaming, just go to the surface and get a breath of air. No, instead you have to tell yourself something. You have to say, I know this. I know what to do because I've been equipped with the right tools and I have the right training to complete my mission. Okay, Then you calmly unkink your hose so that you can breathe again and once that's accomplished, you find your mask and you continue on with the mission at hand, all in the time allotted. Ladies, watching that video made my palms sweat. Many people fail the first and the second time they go through this training. And the only way the trainees can pass the test is to override that, that fight-or-flight uh, part of their brain and to calmly go through those maneuvers that they've practiced hundreds of times before. And that's exactly what the disciplines can help us do. From preparing our hearts before we read the Bible, to carefully, prayerfully, and purposefully Um, go to the Word and read it, we are practicing every day and are training our hearts to recognize and to fight those lures that can suddenly sneak up from nowhere. We are being disciplined in the disciplines. So whatever sins we need to repent of, whatever trials we face, whatever lures are dangling before us, we can remind our hearts, I know this. By God's grace, I know what to do because I'm equipped with the right tools. As 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. How blessed we are that we have been given his word, his Holy Spirit wonderful biblical teaching etc. which gives us the right training to complete our mission. Knowing this spurs us on to prayerfully shepherd our hearts toward God through the Word of God and in particular the Gospel. By God's grace we get to minister to those in our household with a heart for God and for the Gospel. And we have the privilege of shepherding others as we step into the church, thus fulfilling the gospel purpose of drawing in, building up, and sending out. Hallelujah. So I'd like to close us in prayer by reading Hebrews 13:20 20 and 21. And it says, Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you, with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.
1: Good morning, everybody. All right. Um, Let's see. A couple announcements. We have guests who's coming to dinner tonight and this is where we'll be coming for the dessert. So when we're done today, we just need to straighten out the tables to be parallel to that back table and there are extra chairs over here on the side so we can just put chairs on both sides of the table. So that's basically it. Maybe pull this back and fill the room up. Um, So if you can help us with that, that would be great. And um, Women for Truth is next weekend. I think you can probably still sign up for that. Uh, if, you, if you need information about that, maybe see Jamie or um, probably Google Women for Truth online. You could probably find the website. I think you sign up online. And I'm sorry. And today's the 23rd, right? No, the register. Yeah, so you can still register through this weekend, right? Yeah. 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 Okay, thank you. All right, so register today or tomorrow, and then you know you're good. And we don't meet again for Wellspring for three weeks, so don't come in two weeks. don't want you to be here all by yourself, but we will be here in three weeks, and Chris Evans will be here to teach us from Mary and Martha. And then one more um, announcement. It's an opportunity to serve. Um, actually, I know of two opportunities to serve. One, this is this is something for the person who's just really shy and they don't like, you know, the idea of, of going and rocking babies just seems too overwhelming or teaching seven-year-olds seems too overwhelming. There's needs for that, too. So if you are available to serve the next generation, then please um, just prayerfully consider that and mark your interest on the bulletin or call Derek Robinson or something. But... If that's just too overwhelming, there is a need for uh, women who would be willing to serve with the tear-down, set-up or tear-down team, and help with the cleaning. Um, Wear those handy-dandy little rubber gloves and the spray bottles and go around and help clean the bathroom. It's just an opportunity to serve and to be like your Savior. So prayerfully think about that, um, if that would be something that you you would do right ministry for you. Okay. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, thank you. Thank you for just uh, the words you gave to Lori to help us think in a fresh way about our purpose and about the disciplines. Um, Lord, it's just, just a way for us to think about living out what you've done in our lives through the gospel. Thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for saving us. Thank you that we have a hope that is beyond this world, Lord, that, that we, we do look for Christ to come back. We do look forward to that day where we will see him face to face. We will see him as he is, and we will be like him. And we're so thankful for your promises that, Lord, even as you give us just the sober, sober instructions to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, that the whole reason we do that is because you are the one who is at work in us to will and to act according to your good purpose. Oh, Father, um, I pray that that this would be a time, Lord, where we understand rightly your gospel and its implications, where we are encouraged and we are spurred on and we are built up, um, where our relationships with one another are strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. It's good to see you all. Go ahead and open up your Bible to Titus. That's where we're going to be today. and this, this is just kind of an aside. This is um, a book that if you want to do more study on Titus 2, it's a it's a really helpful resource. It's uh, Feminine Appeal by Carolyn Mahaney. Um, I have not read it cover to cover, but I know lots of people who have. And what I really, really appreciate about it is she's just very good at taking something... You know, I I can kind of struggle when I get to a list in scripture, a list of instructions, and I can kind of go into legalism mode. Like, okay, get busy and do all these things. And she's just so, so faithful to keep it tied to the gospel, to keep reminding us that this is what the gospel produces in a believer, and it's what the gospel calls us to and enables us to. And um, if you're like me and you need help being continually reminded of that, it's just a really excellent book. Alright, so we are in the book of Titus today. If you get a chance to read the whole book of Titus, it's three short chapters, but I would encourage you to do so. It's, again, it's just really helpful to take Titus 2, 3 through 5 that we tend to zone in on, which is what we're going to do today. But the whole book of Titus gives us a context that keeps us from making it into just a list of rules that anybody could go after, you know, somebody in a cult or any religion that doesn't have Jesus in it could just take a list of rules, but if we look at the whole book of Titus, it keeps us understanding how this is the fruit of the gospel in a woman who's been born again. Now, Titus is a letter that was written by Paul to Titus, surprise, Um, Paul had taken the gospel to Crete with Titus, and he had left him there to finish the work of establishing the churches. And there was a problem on Crete. There were men who professed to know God, but by their deeds, they denied him. And these men were exerting an influence that was upsetting families. It was upsetting whole households. Households are being thrown into confusion. Because it is confusing when people profess to know God, but they don't live like it. And so Paul is giving instructions to Titus for how to establish the churches, as well as to help address this problem. So the first thing that Paul does is he instructs Titus to appoint godly elders to lead the church. These need to be men who could instruct in sound doctrine for the building up of the church, and they also need to be able to refute those who contradict, those who are upsetting the households and families. And then the second thing Paul does in Titus is, throughout this book, He makes it very clear what the role of good deeds and what the role of godliness has in the life of a believer and the life of the church. It's really important to have a true, biblical, accurate understanding of good deeds when there is disruption caused by those who are denying God by their deeds. In Titus 3, verses 4 and 5, if you have your Bible open there, you can read along, Paul writes, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. See, our deeds could never save us. We are only saved according to his mercy in the gospel. But his mercy and his grace don't just save us. His grace transforms us. So that our lives show that we belong to Jesus. Look now at Titus 2.11. We read there that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to men, but not just bringing salvation. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That is what God's grace does in our lives. It saves and it instructs us in godliness. That is why Jesus gave himself on the cross for us. You can see that in verse 14, our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. In chapter 2, verse 7, Titus is instructed to be an example of good deeds. In chapter 3, verse 1, believers are told to be ready for every good deed. In chapter 3, verse 8, believers need to be reminded of the gospel so they'll be careful to engage in good deeds. See, the gospel produces godliness in those who belong to Christ. And that is what sets genuine believers apart from the rebellious men who are influencing the church and stirring up households. But godliness is still something that has to be learned. In chapter 3, verse 14, Paul wrote, Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds. And so the third way... That Paul prepared Titus to establish the church was to give clear instructions for godly living. Now there are many instructions that apply to everyone, such as we find in Titus chapter 3. But there was also a need for specific instruction for each kind of people within a household. And that's what we find in Titus 2. In the midst of these instructions that are given to older men and older women and young women and young men and even slaves, Paul underscores what is at stake in the home, in the church, and in the world based on the way believers live. You can see in Titus 2 verse 5 that that we are um, exhorted to live godly lives so that the word of God will not be dishonored. In verse 8, it's so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And then in verse 10, it's so that we will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. What's at stake is the glory of God in his word, which has as its crown jewel the gospel. And our lives affect how others see that. That is what's at stake. So that's just a little bit of a snapshot of context. Um, And we need to keep that in mind as we dig in and examine these specific instructions for women in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. These instructions are strategic, they're God's design for us to display the transforming power of the gospel in our lives so that our homes and our families are protected, so that our church is strengthened. And so that we give the world no reason to discredit the gospel. Now we're going to see that Paul is concerned with the kind of women that we are at a heart level. And that applies to every season of life. When we study older women, we can't just check out because we don't think we're old yet. All right, Because we're all older than somebody. And this is what we all need to be aiming for and growing in, because this is what the gospel produces in women who've been redeemed by Jesus Christ. So let's turn to Titus 2, verses 3-5, through 5, if you're not there already, and see what Paul has to say specifically to women. Verse 3, he says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women To love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now we can summarize the passage this way, and you have it in your notes. The gospel is honored through transformed older women training transformed younger women. Titus 2 instructs us in godliness, and it instructs us as women to be involved in one another's lives. So our relationships with each other are very important. Well, let's look at number one on the outline. And so first of all, let's talk about what is meant by older women. The text doesn't indicate a specific age range. Commentators say it could primarily refer to women whose children are grown. But as we just said, all of us are older than somebody. So these are qualities for all of us to cultivate and to aspire to. Those of you who are youngest here, you have an opportunity, even in your teens, to live this way so that little girls in the church growing up admiring godliness, admiring biblical womanhood. And as we get older, that continues. Each season brings new perspectives that we need to share with those who are younger than we are. We all need to grow in displaying the gospel's work in us and in passing that on to younger women and girls, both in our homes and in the church. So, the first quality we see is that we are to be reverent in our behavior. Now, this word reverent is related to the idea of being suitable for the temple, it means being set apart and holy. Now, priests in the Old Testament, they were set apart. They were to draw near to the presence of God in the temple. But Paul does not mean here that this woman is a priestess. It just simply means that she does everything with a view towards worshiping God. It's what's described in 1 Corinthians 10.31 when it says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. She is to see all of her life as sacred and set apart. And how do we grow in that? Because reverence doesn't just happen because you get old. We have to be committed to being in the word and drawing near to his God drawing near to God in his word. And a reverent woman is a doer of the word, not just a hearer, but one who's obedient and growing in obedience. As the truths of the gospel penetrate our shepherded hearts, we will grow in having a reverent love. For God, and holiness will overflow into every aspect of who we are and what we do. We've said it many, many times. There will be an aroma of Christ. Now, reverent behavior is not exactly popular, right? You don't see it on the cover of women's magazines, um, it kind of sounds old fashioned. But God's word says that we are to be reverent. It's what the gospel intends to produce in us. So we just need to ask ourselves, is that even our desire? Do we desire to be reverent women? Set-apart women who are concerned for holiness in the life of our home and in our church. Now this first quality, being reverent in behavior... Uh, might be functioning like an overarching, kind of an umbrella quality. Kind of like when Paul describes elder qualifications, he starts with above reproach, and then he lists what the qualifications are that would make a man above reproach. So this idea of being reverent in behavior might be kind of an umbrella like that. And then the rest of the list is helping to explain what that is. So after reverent in behavior, we see not malicious gossips. So we are not to be malicious gossips or slanderers. Now the Greek word for slanderer is diabolos, meaning devil. He is the one who is an accuser and a slanderer. He is the one who slanders us in the presence of God and slanders God to us. This word occurs 34 times in the New Testament as a title for Satan. And this is the quality that we're being warned against here. It's very serious. Gossip is serious and we are not to engage in it. We are not to repeat vicious gossip to others or to be backbiting. But we are to be women who control our tongue. Gossip is not something that we can get rid of just by picking off the leaves. You know, like when you go out to pull weeds in your garden, if you just get the leaves, they just pop right back up, right? you got to go out and dig up the root. Um, and the same is true for gossip. So what is the root of our words? This is going to start sounding like a broken record. We've been talking about this from the first week of Wellspring. Matthew 12:34 says, "From For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. That's so what fills the heart. So, what accusations might might we be entertaining in our hearts that then overflow into our words? You know, these are just a few things to think about, but it might be judging others. It might be keeping a record of wrongs. Mulling over someone else's shortcomings. Could just be a generally critical attitude. When we think like that, we are accusing others, just like Satan does. But God's grace in the gospel sets us free from being accusers. So, what is the overflow of our hearts? Is it gossip? Is it accusations? Or is it love and mercy and grace? Are we concerned with how we're using our words in our households? about our households? Are we concerned with our words and the effect of our words that we send out electronically? Are we concerned with those words that we just think about saying? Are we concerned about the words that we're willing to listen to? If slander or gossip or accusations are finding a place in our thoughts, For our words, or our conversations, then we need to go before the Lord and recognize what that is showing us about our hearts. And we need to turn from that, put that off, and by God's grace in the gospel, put on gracious words, merciful words, words that protect the honor of God's word and care well for others. Well, in verse 3, it reads uh, that the reverent woman is not a malicious gossip, nor enslaved to much wine. They're linked with that word, nor. So there's a connection here. Not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. And that might be because when one has too much to drink, self-control can become easily negotiated away. And one area where this is seen is with the tongue. And that's what we just talked about. The effect of alcohol can loosen one's restraint over her tongue. Now, nowhere in Scripture does Paul totally forbid wine. Although, if you are... There's always Romans 13.1. We need to obey the rules of our government if it's prohibited for your age. But multiple places in Scripture, drunkenness is condemned. Drunkenness is Now, the word enslaved, enslaved to much wine, is a term of bondage. Now, why do you think he wants to warn women about this in particular? I mean, Paul just has four instructions for older women. And out of the four, he thought this was important to include. I just think that's interesting. I think it's it's possibly because a woman may turn to alcohol, or be tempted to turn to alcohol to deal with life's struggles. Perhaps it's a way for her to deal with being tired, she's stressed out, she's hurt, she's angry. She just wants a little relief. But if that is where she turns over and over again, she may become enslaved. And of course, wine isn't the only thing that can enslave us, right? Um, Titus 3.3 3 describes us before we were Christ's followers. And it says we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. But in Christ we've been set free. We are now his slaves. So if we are relying on or enslaved to anything for comfort other than Christ, we need to turn from those things. We need to fight the flesh and put to death the deeds of the flesh. By walking in the Spirit. Now, we've already said that drunkenness is sin. But this is just a word of wisdom. If you drink, be careful. Be careful with your use of alcohol. Just because it's permissible doesn't mean it's profitable. If it's flowing freely, if it's flowing frequently, it's just worth evaluating. You know, if you're not sure, ask a wise sister to help you evaluate your heart and your motive, why you drink. Do you handle alcohol in such a way that you can say Jesus is the point of it, that he gets the most glory from your life in the way that you handle alcohol? Evaluate the influence that your use of alcohol has on how you shepherd your heart. Evaluate the influence that it has. On others, how it impacts your gospel witness in your household, in your church, maybe with younger women. Can you say to others with a clear conscience, follow me as I follow Christ in the way I use alcohol? A reverent woman is a woman who shepherds her heart to find her fulfillment, her joy, and her comfort and her peace in her Savior. That's the implication of the gospel in a woman's life this kind of woman is equipped to give younger women hope, to testify that Jesus really is everything we need, and that we can train our souls to find our satisfaction in him. So then finally, number four, Paul says that older women are to teach what is good. Literally means teaching what is excellent or noble, what is holy and godly. Both of their words And with our example. Now, where does that come from? Of course, it comes from God's Word, right? It's God's Word that gives us God's wisdom. Now, teaching what is good is not just giving our opinions or experiences, although, there are times when that is helpful. But we can be tempted to think that we're not qualified to encourage and train other women because we haven't necessarily experienced what they're going through. And, you know, it is true that at times it is really helpful to connect with someone who can identify with a particular challenge. Maybe it's dealing with a serious medical issue in your family or caring for aging parents. We just all have a lot of unique circumstances. But if God has put us in the role of teaching and encouraging and comforting another woman, then we give her the truth that we do have. Second Corinthians 1.4 says that God comforts us in all of our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, even if it's not the same affliction and we comfort them with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Often the good that we have to teach other women is something the Lord has taught us as we walked through a trial or an affliction. And this verse says that we have to give what we have to give to one another is the comfort that God has given us, regardless of the the affliction that it came in. And God comforts us through his word, Revealing who he is and all that he's done for us in the gospel and the sure and certain hope that we have for eternity. So we need to be women who are pointing others to God's word, to meeting with God in his word and trusting him and obeying him. And you can be confident that they will find him to be faithful. So, how are we doing as older women? That's a hard question, isn't it? On one hand, we don't want to be careless and just say, Yep, (laughs) that's me, because we know we're in a mixed condition. We all fail. So, as we look at these questions to help us evaluate and reflect, we want to look for growth and we want to look for the direction that we're moving in. And where we see what is good and we see godliness taking root and growing, then rejoice and praise God because that is the work of his grace in our lives. And where there is weakness and where there is sin and where there is room for growth, it is his kindness to show us that. And so we confess it and we seek his grace to grow in godliness. So some questions we can ask. Are we aware of the example that we're setting? I think you've got these in your notes. Are we growing in a sense of reverence? Of giving God glory in every part of our life? Are we growing in God's, using God's word to guide our thinking through meeting with God in his word faithfully? Are we turning away from gossip and speaking what is good? Are we thoughtful and self-controlled about our use of alcohol? Do we seek our rest and our comfort in Jesus himself? Are we growing in that? Are we teaching what is good to other women by what we say and what we do? Those are some ways we can evaluate and um, persevere in growing as godly older women. And that brings us to number two on the outline. What we learn, where we learn what transformed older women must train the young women to be. So, why don't we take a real short break here and then we'll come back and cover the rest of the verses. All right, thanks. All right, so we're up to verse 4. Verse 4 begins so that they, the older women, may encourage the young women. And so, encourage here means to train. to advise, to urge, and it's an ongoing influence. Now, when we are in the position of being a younger woman, we may not always see our need to be trained or advised. We may not naturally be particularly open to that. But the gospel enables us to be humble and to be teachable and to ask godly older women for help in being the kind of woman that we find described here. I used to think Titus 2 meant that I needed to go find that one older woman who was just going to be the perfect Titus 2 woman for me, whose whose life kind of looked just like mine. But Christ has placed us in a body. And so sometimes it's through the most unexpected women that the Lord will teach us a lesson that we never would have even gone looking for. Many times it's just a few conversations or a woman's example But Titus 2 shows us the importance and the value of cultivating meaningful relationships with women in the body of Christ. And that can happen in a lot of different ways. And remember, God's heart to protect our homes and the church and the honor of his word is tied up in that. So this is important. So let's read verses 4 and 5. So that they, the older women, may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be dishonored. We are to train and advise young women to make deliberate use of every aspect of their life to honor God's word. Now, the first two, to love her husband and to love her children, address the gospel influence that a married woman has in her closest relationships. Now, in the Greek, these are literally husband-lover and children-lover. It describes who the woman is, not just something that she does. So let's look at what it means to be a husband-lover. Now, in a married woman's life, this is her priority, and it can be taught. This love isn't based on emotion. It means choosing to pursue devotion to your husband, to cherish him, to be friends with him, as much as it depends on you. It's a tender affection that overflows from first loving Christ. It's lavishing God's grace that's been lavished on you, on your husband. And each wife must learn to love her own husband. That means you need to get to know him, and to study him, and ask him, How can you be most helpful to him? Now, marriage is a gift. We talked about that last week. And there are many things that make marriage unique But there is one thing, biblically, that sets marriage apart from every other relationship. And we talked about that last week in Genesis 2. You become one flesh. And that intimacy is an important part of the gift of marriage. It is not just a gift to your husband. It is a gift to you. If you are single, it is a gift. that's only for marriage. And And you love your future husband if you do marry one day. By saving it as a gift that you will only experience with him. And you're going to only experience it with him when he is your husband. And if we're married, it is to be savored as a gift. To be received and enjoyed as a gift from God. Sometimes we don't see it as a gift. We can easily see it as a duty or a responsibility. We get tired. There's a lot to do in a day. And we can be exhausted and distracted. And managing all of that is part of being sensible and self-controlled. That's another Titus 2 quality. But intimacy is a gift from God. And God is the giver of all good things. It's a gift which a husband and a wife enjoy together. So this can be a real opportunity for shepherding our thinking. Maybe to a change of thinking. But by faith we can choose to embrace it as a good gift. our father and honor the God who gave the gift by enjoying it with thankfulness with our husband and the power of the gospel's work in us means that this kind of love can be learned that can even happen in an arranged marriage like would have been true in Paul's day when he wrote this so older women this is the kind of gospel-centered love that we are to help younger women cultivate Even if we're single, we need to understand biblically what it means to love your husband so that we are prepared to encourage other women to be faithful in that. Now, if loving is an area that you particularly want to grow in, in understanding it and practicing it, you've got 1 Corinthians 13 there in your notes. That's the love chapter. and It is just a great passage to spend time in meeting with the Lord, read it, pray it. Ponder it, study it, and grow in displaying this gospel fruit of love. Well, the second one, then, is children lovers. And that brings us to encouraging the young women to be children lovers. And although the most obvious application would be to mothers, I just want to ask, can't any of us be children lovers? Right? There are children all around us. You have grandchildren. You have neighbors. You have nieces and nephews. You have children in the church. And these are all children that we can love, with whom we can spend time, and with whom we can share the gospel, and we can just pour out our lives to them. And I know that it's something that many of you are already doing. But again, this is also a love that can be taught. This is a love that is selfless. It's a love that is affectionate. And it's learning, learning, right? It's a process of learning to train our children in light of God's grace and the gospel. These things take time to grow, and we especially need to remember that in parenting. It's a process. Um, And that means that first and most that we seek to be women who rely on God's grace, that we are seeking to be gracious moms as a result of shepherding our own hearts so that we can soak our children's lives with God's word and his gospel. It means showing our children how much we love him. It's teaching them how to live and rescuing them from their sinful behavior with godly discipline. Now, what are some ways that we might be unloving to our children, maybe without even realizing it? Well, it's not loving to overindulge our children or to ignore their sin It's not loving to try to buy their affection or their compliance with treats or promises. It's not loving to be inconsistent, basing our discipline more on our mood or our convenience than on their need to be trained. It's not loving to only discipline them for wrong behavior without teaching them right behavior and giving them the opportunity to practice that. Again, we need to think about this about the direction that we're moving in here, right? It's not just perfection. No, none of us have got that down. But it's not loving to train good behavior without using that training to point them to biblical truth, to what's true about our God and our need for him and the preciousness of what Christ has done on the cross. We are loving our children when we help them understand how our standards reflect God's standards. And the, the reason why, from God's word, behind the standards that we're teaching them. We're not loving our children when we don't seek their forgiveness when we sin against them. And it's also not loving to respond to our children's sin with our own sin. And as I go through that list, I just have to say, busted. (laughs) Guilty as charged, right? Because I am guilty of unbiblical parenting, of not loving our children biblically. I'm guilty. All of these at one time or another inconsistency, responding sinfully to their sin with my own impatience and anger. I'm guilty. And if you're saying that with me, what's our hope? Jesus, right? He's the one who died in our place, cleansed us from our sin, and set us free from sin. He's the one who redeemed us from every lawless deed. We saw that in Titus 2.14. Not if, but when we sin in our parenting, when we sin against our children, even if it's in response to their sin, we need to confess it. We need to ask them to forgive us, and then we need to share with them the hope of the gospel, our hope, and the hope that can be their hope, too. And this kind of love is costly. It will cost us a lot of time. It takes a lot of time. But in the process, we learn to look to our Heavenly Father more and more, and to cry out to him more for help, and to search his word for wisdom. As we continue to learn and grow, our love for Christ and his gospel will keep growing. And we will have this amazing joy of teaching our children the greatness of our God and his salvation. And it's never too late. Some of us didn't even become believers until after our kids were adults. And so we live out what the gospel has done in our lives in front of them and in front of our grandkids, and we proclaim the gospel to them, and we pray, and we trust God. And it's just so encouraging. With all of these, it's so encouraging to see so much fruit in your lives already. But then that brings us to sensible The next quality that older women are to teach the young women is being sensible. Now, being sensible means letting the gospel impact our minds. It's being self-controlled and having a sound mind. Being thoughtful rather than basing our decisions on emotion or impulse. The ESV actually translates the word self-controlled. And it is a quality that is necessary in every other part of our lives. Proverbs 25:28 says, Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. See, self-control offers protection from all kinds of sin and foolishness. We need self-control in every area of our life. Okay, I mean, this list is endless, but we need self-control to be wise with our sleep, with our money, with our time. With our eating, with our responsibilities, with our thoughts, with our responses, with our emotions, with our exercise, with our energy, with our priorities, with our calendar, with our leisure, with our attitude. It's everything, right? This is kind of one of those overarching qualities. But self-control allows us to live in a way that displays the transforming work of the gospel in our lives. And that protects God's word from dishonor. So how do we do that? How do we do that? If there was ever an area where it is evident in my life that I am in a mixed condition, this is it. This is it. Self-control shows me that obedience is something I have to battle for. And we have to remember that any time that we can see sin in our lives, that is God's grace. God's grace that he gives us eyes to see it and so we can persevere in the battle and in the fight for holiness and God gets glory in our perseverance in that battle we are not who we once were we are not people who are indifferent to our sin or enslaved to our sin any longer and we're not who we will be either right not yet one day we will be completely free from all of sin's presence and its attempts to influence us and entangle us. But today, we persevere in the fight for holiness. And so how do we battle for self-control? Well, at our last Friday night women's meeting, um, my husband, Scott, talked on self-control. And he taught from Galatians 5. And he showed us that success in the pursuit of self-control is rooted in our new affections for Christ and our new identity in Christ. And that's absolutely true. Now, practically speaking, I have come to realize that this is one area of sin and battle with which I have to be very, very vigilant. And so I'm going to share some things that I've learned in the battle, not because the battle's over Not because I've got it all figured out or because this is the only way or the best way to battle for self-control. But I just am hopeful that some of the things that the Lord has taught me may also be helpful to you. So one thing I've learned is that just confessing to the Lord that I haven't used self-control, this is true of any sin. But just confessing it doesn't necessarily mean that I have godly sorrow over that sin. That's what 2 Corinthians 7.10 talks about. So we need to ask ourselves, why do I regret it? Do I just regret the consequences of not using self-control? See, when that's the case, we need to confess to God that even our confession is self-centered. And we need to battle and plead with God for a heart that's broken over the offense that our sin is to a holy God for a heart that's grieved over how costly our sin was to Christ on the cross. Now, one thing that helps us to battle for that heart of genuine repentance is to prayerfully and biblically examine the sins that we might be dragging along when we don't use self-control. For example, the fruit of the Spirit includes self-control. So when we're not using self-control... It is like a red warning light on the dashboard telling us that we are resisting the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. That is serious. That is a dangerous place to be. The Holy Spirit is the one who regenerated us and brought us to Christ. This is the Holy Spirit whom Christ has poured out in our lives. The Holy Spirit is the one through whom God has poured his love out in our hearts. And the Holy Spirit is the one um, with whom we're commanded to keep in step and not to grieve him and not to quench him. That Holy Spirit, we are resi- that's the Holy Spirit that we're resisting the fruit that he intends to bear in our lives. Now when I put it that way, that sin alarms me. Now I can see that this was way more than just you know, a little slip-up. A little mistake. Another thing to realize is that when I'm resisting the fruit of the Spirit in my life, then I'm not loving my neighbor very well. Because the fruit of the Holy Spirit isn't just self-control. It includes Galatians 5, 22 and 23. You probably know it by heart. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control So when I am resisting the spirit producing his fruit in my life by not using self-control, then my ability to love, my ability to be patient and gentle, it's all compromised. Now another question that helps us get to the root of sin is to ask ourselves, who are we worshipping when we're being self-indulgent rather than self-controlled? And the answer, in my case, is me I'm serving me when I refuse to use self-control. And if I am serving and worshipping me, then I am an idolater. That's idolatry. I'm giving myself to that which God I'm giving myself that which God alone deserves. I'm a glory thief. Christ had to suffer and die for that idolatry. Now you might remember in the lesson we did on the discipline of shepherding my heart, we had a section of the outline that walks us through some suggestions for how to identify and battle specific sins with the gospel. And just as we saw then, our battle for self-control is not done just because we've identified the sin or even confessed it. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves from God's word and the implications of the gospel for our new affections and our new identity And our new abilities. We need to soak ourselves in the transforming truth of the word. Which will counter all the lies and excuses that we're so prone to make for ourselves. When we allow ourselves to depart from self-control. Finally, the biggest thing that I am learning. Is that self-control is something for which I must battle daily. And you know, I'm thinking it's going to be like that the rest of my life. It might be like that for you for the rest of your life. And, you know, again, these things are not true only for self-control. Any sin with which we particularly struggle. It could be pride. could be fear. But when I meet with the Lord each day, and I meet with him and I pray, I need to be confessing this sin and this weakness every day. And I need to be consistently searching God's word for his truth about what should be controlling me I need to memorize God's word and I need to have memos on my phone and sticky notes on my desk that remind me that God's grace and the gospel calls me and enables me to be controlled by the love of Christ that's 2 Corinthians five, fourteen or 15 I think I think you might have it in your notes but I'm not to be controlled by a love for myself God has given us himself, and there is satisfaction in knowing and drawing near to him, drinking in the river of his delights that no self-indulgence can ever compete with. And I'm weak. And so at least for me, the only way I see headway in my life against this sin, and a lack of self-control in particular, is to stay in the battle every day. And that displays the power of his gospel in our lives. We stay in the battle Okay, that brings us to pure. Go ahead and flip over to 1 John chapter 3. It's a little bit to your right if you're in Titus. Now, purity is the same virtue that we saw last time when we looked at 1 Peter 3, verse 2. The pure and respectful behavior by a wife that can win the husband who is disobedient to the word. And pure means holy, set apart, pure inside and out. Uncontaminated. Now, there's a different word used for holiness in Scripture that describes our positional holiness. For example, in Colossians 3.12, Paul wrote, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. And throughout the New Testament, believers are called saints. And that's that same word that means holy ones. But this word for pure is used to describe a practical purity, and holiness. And it's evidence of the positional holiness that believers have because they are in Christ. This word for pure is used to describe God's wisdom in James 3.17. And it's also used to describe Jesus himself. This is a weighty word. There is no higher standard. So how do we learn to be pure. How do we teach young women to pursue purity like this that's absolutely unspoiled even down to the center of one's being? Well, praise God, we can find out in 1 John 3. Look at verse 2 with me. John wrote, "Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, and we will see him just as he is." And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So who purifies himself? It's everyone who has this hope of Christ's return and seeing him as he is. This is a part of the gospel that we need to be preaching to ourselves. Because anticipating Christ's return motivates us to an ongoing lifestyle of purification, of becoming more and more pure. In 1 Timothy 5.22, this word is translated free from sin. So growing in purity requires both an ongoing, deliberate commitment to putting off sin and to putting on obedience and holiness like we just talked about with self-control. And it requires that we keep our hope fixed on Jesus' return. That we continue to remind ourselves that he will appear and we will be like him and we will see him as he is. So if we're going to grow in purity, we need to ask, are we aware of impurities that we might be tempted by? What does tempt us? It could be a temptation to impurity in our thought life or in our speech or in our entertainment, or in how we dress. It could be in how we interact with men. So be diligent to flee from temptation to repent of sin, because Christ has already given himself for us to redeem us from every impurity. And we saw it in Titus too, to purify us for himself, so that we are ready to meet him face to face when he returns. Well, that brings us to worker at home. And that describes a woman who has a heart for her household, who understands the value of the work and the relationships and the opportunities in her home. Now, this word is actually an adjective. So you could say that we are to be home working women. It describes the kind of women that we are to be in Christ. Now, this might be the quality that we're most uncomfortable with. It might be tempting to reduce it only to looking at our outward behavior. But being a worker at home is not a litmus test. If we're not employed outside our home, we cannot automatically conclude that we are workers at home. And if we are employed outside our home, we must not conclude that we can't be a worker at home or that we don't have a responsibility to be a worker at home. This is a heart quality. Now, when we look at the bigger context of Titus, remember that Paul was concerned about the influence of rebellious men who were upsetting families. And in other places, Paul expresses a similar concern for households, and especially the women there. In 2 Timothy 3, households with weak women who are weighed down with sin and led by their impulses, see, these are women who are not pursuing purity and self-control like we've just been talking about, These weak women make households a target for evil men. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul said that there's a temptation for young widows not to work in their homes, but to be idle and to go from house to house and to gossip. And if they do, they are giving the adversary an opportunity to speak reproachfully. Now, a couple of lessons ago, Jamie helped us to see the influence that feminism has had in trying to downplay the importance of the home and a woman's role in it. But that was a problem back when Paul was writing these letters. This is not a new problem. It's not a new attack. But the household is important. If you survey the New Testament, we can find that households are noted for hosting and serving churches, extending hospitality, training children, teaching the gospel, instructing in sound doctrine and godliness, and refreshing believers, missionaries, and even those who are in prison. The home is important to God's work in the church. It is essential. And as women, we have a responsibility to be home working women. We don't want our homes to hinder the work or the reputation of the gospel. But rather we want them to bring honor to God's word and to be useful to the church. And that is what happens when we value and esteem the work of the home. When we are faithful in our homes to nurture and to serve those who live there, like we've said before, when we fill our homes with the aroma of Christ. So this quality is not negotiable for any woman in any season of life. This is a call to have a heart for the work of the home and to be diligent with it. So what does the work of a household include? Well, for a married woman with children at home, the home is where she loves and nurtures her family. And as we've already said, that takes time. It means choosing to find contentment in helping our husbands and shepherding our children. And it means being faithful with the work that a household requires, learning diligence in managing the many tasks. And there are seasons when the work of the home leaves very little room for anything else, even good things. Now, sometimes for a season, under well-thought-out circumstances, a couple might find it best to have the wife working outside the home. But that is a weighty decision, and it needs to be made carefully. And it needs to be made letting this call to be a home-working woman inform that decision. It's a costly decision to make, and it needs to be entered into carefully and prayerfully. You might benefit from seeking wise counsel about that decision, because there needs to be a clear way for any woman to be a home worker, whether she's married and she's working outside the home, or if she's single and she's in school or she's working, or if she's home full-time, where there are still so many things that can take us away from being home workers. We can be overcommitted or it can be lazy, or we can be careless with the shepherding of our own hearts. You saw Paul's concern for that. So how does that leave us to think about work outside the home? What about the Proverbs 31 woman? She was busy buying fields and selling clothes, and she she was thinking and interacting with people beyond her home. But it's clear from Proverbs 31 that this was not contradictory to her being a worker at home. She was caring for the needs of her household, and anything she did outside of the home was to benefit those in her home. And it's evident from Proverbs 31 that those in her household knew that. Now, last week we mentioned Lydia. She was a businesswoman, and she was hospitable. She pleaded with Paul for the opportunity to serve him in her home. (coughs) Understanding the value of her home was one of the first evidences Evidences of God's grace at work in her life when she came to Christ. Another example is Priscilla. She was married to a man named Aquila, and Acts 18 says that she and her husband worked as tent makers. It was their vocation. It's what they did for a living. Scripture also tells us that she was a fellow worker in Christ Jesus, and she and her husband hosted a church in their home. Her work and her ministry were not a hindrance to her role as a home worker. There are circumstances that may demand that a woman work outside the home. If you're single and you're living away from your parents, or your husband is disabled, or you're a single mom, if that is you, Oh, I'm sorry. Or also, if you or your husband have decided that working outside the home is the best thing for your household, that it's necessary, if that's you, then be a home-working woman who also works outside your home and do your work well. Do your work in your home well and do your work outside your home well and do it without guilt and do it with all your heart as serving the Lord. That's what Colossians 3.23 exhorts us to do. And it is difficult to do both. It's difficult. And it will require that you shepherd your heart diligently. And you are probably going to have to battle every day to flood your heart and your mind with as much of God's word as you can. And you may have to get really creative. And there may be a lot of other good things that you have to turn down. But you can trust your Savior. You can trust your master. If this is what he has for you, his grace is sufficient. This is his plan for you to give him glory, and to make you like more like Jesus right now. If you are not working outside the home, then be careful. You must shepherd your heart diligently too. Don't be idle. Don't be one of those weak women who are weighed down by their sins and led by their impulses. Don't gossip. Don't be a busybody, being all about everybody else's business but not your own. But protect the honor of God's word and your gospel influence in your home by managing your home well. Value that work and be diligent in that work. The work in your home is among the good works that God prepared in advance for you to walk in. And you need God's grace to do that work well also. And so, because we've been talking about how much we need grace, and we all need God's grace for doing all those things, I just had to put some verses that I encourage my own heart with about God's grace there. And I even want to give you a couple that didn't make it onto the notes. You can add to that list there Hebrews 4, 14-16, and Ephesians 2, 8-10. It can just be really helpful to go and remind ourselves about what God's word says about the abundance and sufficiency of his grace and the strength that is to be found in his grace. But understanding the value that God places on our role as home workers is helpful. It helps us understand the importance of cultivating a heart for the relationships and the work and the ministry of the home. And it helps us to evaluate our priorities and our commitments on a heart level so that we can grow in our availability to love and serve others through our role as a home worker. And it can be really helpful or even necessary to ask our husbands if we're married or our parents if we live with them to help us and lead us in evaluating these priorities in our home. Being a worker at home is the privilege of every Christian woman. So if you struggle with seeing the value and the joy in that, no matter what your season of life, then find an older woman to help you cultivate God's heart for your home. If you are married and you have any concerns at all about how this is played out in your home, it would be really helpful to ask your husband if he would listen to the build message that the men hear on this from Scott Maxwell. Um, You see the, the link there in your notes. Um, it was on January 12th. Because that, that's where Scott shepherds the men in leading their wives in being Titus' two women. It could just be really helpful so that you and your husband have unity over understanding the importance of this. Okay, that brings us to kind. Now, this word kind is most often translated good in the New Testament. And it's a goodness that comes from the heart and then overflows into words and actions that benefit others. And so kind is a good translation. That's what kindness is. It's a goodness that comes from the heart and then it overflows into words and actions that benefit others. Jesus said in Luke 6.45, The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. So we're back at discipline one again. We never depart from discipline one. Nothing good will come out of our heart if we're not shepherding our heart to meet with God in his word. Now you might be familiar with the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. When Martha complained that her sister Mary wasn't helping her, Jesus responded by saying that Mary had chosen the good part. He used the same word. She chose the part that had a goodness to it, that overflows and benefits others. That was the part that she chose when she chose to come and sit and listen to Jesus. Discipline one is the greatest good that we can do for our own hearts. We draw near to God in his word and he transforms us to be those who overflow, overflow with his goodness. And again, like we've seen with so many of these heart qualities, that goodness will permeate our words. Ephesians four twenty nine says, "Let no unwholesome word come from your mouth, but only such a word as is good." It's the same word again. It's good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. When we are good and kind, it will show in our words. We will be thoughtful and self-controlled and intentional about speaking with grace so that others are built up and encouraged and will be wise about when to speak those words. And kindness will also show in what we do, you know, in our deeds and in our work, like what we do as home workers. It's interesting how kindness follows right on the heels of being workers at home in Titus 2.5 often our heart attitude is most clearly revealed right in our own homes with those relationships. And sadly, very often our household is where we can be most careless about being kind. We can start keeping track in our minds maybe of who has served more, or we might not think it's just important to be careful with our tone or our facial expressions, to be certain that they express kindness along with our words and our actions. But sincere, I'm sorry, but since genuine kindness is something God produces in our lives and it flows out of us from our hearts, then it can't be based on how someone else is acting or on how they're treating us. It's not a reaction to those around us. It's supposed to be a reflection of our Heavenly Father because of the transforming work that the gospel has done in us. Jesus said in Luke 6:35, "But love your enemies and do good, do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the most high, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men like us." This is a high call. It's a daunting call, and we are weak. We can never do this on our own. But soaking our hearts with the gospel has the power to produce Christ-like kindness in us. Well, that brings us to being subject to our own husbands. Now, being subject is the same word as submit, as we saw in Ephesians 5 last time. The idea is that there's someone who is a leader, and then there's someone who's not the leader. That one is a follower and a helper. In this case, it's the wife. She lines her life up under the one in authority, her husband. We talked about this last time, the big picture of how a wife's submission displays the relationship of the church to Christ. And what a privilege that is. It's willingly placing ourselves in submission to our husbands and yielding to him out of a love for Christ. Now, we said all that last week. But it can still be hard to know exactly how this flushes out. It's easy to have blind spots. So one of the supplements you received is a supplemental resource. It was right behind your, it might be the last page that you got or in your behind-the-notes. looks like this, D2, The Home, Biblical Submission and Marriage. And it's just a list of thoughts that describe being a submissive wife. And so I, just, I want to give just a little disclaimer for that. This is not the bottom line on submission. Okay? It's not um, you know, the final word except where what's on there is straight out of God's word. Um, some of these are just perspectives that you might find helpful in forming a well-rounded understanding of submission. So try to get your mind around them as a whole and get the big picture. And if one of them just doesn't seem to make sense and you don't see how, where it fits biblically, then talk to me. Talk to Jamie. Talk to Anne, Because our, our goal here is not to create any confusion or any unbiblical thinking. Just trying to be helpful. Um, now, I didn't get this supplement done before the homework was printed, but if you would grab your green homework page, I want you to pull that out and right across the top of it, just add this assignment, and that is to read this resource. Read the biblical submission resource. And this is important for everyone, again, whether we're married or we're not married, because submission is a heart issue. And we need to be ready to speak biblically to one another about submission and to think rightly about submission to other kinds of authority as well. We are all people under authority. So take some time and look at that, those on your own this week. And if you want to, in your discussion time, you can look through those and talk about those. Now, you also have a couple of questions on the back of that supplement. Um, And they're there just to help us evaluate. This is just like the other optional resources you've had. You can go ahead and, in fact, you could do this as, like, in place of part of your homework this week, because you have a homework question that talks about choosing one of these Titus 2 qualities and digging a little bit deeper with evaluating ourselves in that. If you choose submission, you could do the resource. In place of that, that would be a place to use that. You can always just do it additionally, but um, part of our call, call, you know, part of our what we're doing here in Wellspring is our discipline three is ministry, and so we're giving you these optional resources, both for the shepherding of your own heart, but also to equip you in helping you care well for others. So hang on to those, file those together. It's just a resource that we hope that you're building that will help you be prepared to be an older woman. Okay. Well, we need to understand that there is protection um, when a woman comes under the headship of her husband. And we can't assume that all women understand this principle of submission because it is just so contrary to the world's messages. But as older women, we need to understand and we need to help younger women understand that biblical submission makes for a healthy family and for a healthy church, and it honors God's word. It's about our heart and our willingness to trust him and tr- a willingness to trust God and submit to him. So that brings us to number three. What happens when transformed women are all they should be? This is Roman numeral three. So why do we as women need to be careful how we live? Because the world needs to see the power of the gospel at work. It needs to see that the gospel is the truth that leads to godliness, that frees us from every lawless deed, that it purifies us and makes us the church, a people for Jesus' own possession who are zealous for good deeds. The world needs to see that we belong to Christ. It needs to see his image formed in us. Titus 3:3 3, 3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. We used to be just like the world around us, but we've been saved. And how will the world know that? By growing in our obedience to Titus 2. We are not what we once were. And that is a powerful witness to the world that God's word is worth honoring and submitting to. You have a quote in your notes there from John MacArthur. It says, The world judges the gospel, which is the heart of the word of God, by the character of the people who believe and claim to be transformed by it. Now, you might have noticed at the beginning of your outline, across the top, I put Discipline 1, Discipline 2, and Discipline 3. And that's because when we shepherd our hearts, that's Discipline 1, to be this kind of Titus 2 woman... Then our homes are protected, that's discipline two, and we are equipped for discipline three, to encourage other women to adorn the gospel by the way they live. And we have a tremendous privilege and responsibility of displaying the transforming power of the gospel to the watching world. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Um, Lord, this is a lot. Um, Lord, your word is full, your word is weighty. Your word is challenging, and Father, I pray that more than anything else, we would see how desperately needy we are for the ongoing work of your gospel in our lives, that we would draw near to you, and you would do the work that only you can do in us and through us, that our lives might be lives that adorn your gospel well. Father, I pray for our discussion time. I pray that each woman, um, Lord, just would have the joy of fellowship with other women, that each woman would be built up and encouraged and prepared to go forth this day and um, live thankfully and with joy and with boldness with what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.